listener production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. I'm Tom Tilley. It is Tuesday, March 30, and on today's briefing, we take you to Hong Kong. It's been two years since those mass protests broke out against Chinese control. There's certainly a strong sense of a deal being broken here and kind of Beijing sort of taking control of Hong Kong in a way that that was not supposed to happen. You'll find out what's happened since those waves of protests where they stood up to China. That's coming up in just a moment. First, Annika Smethurst is here as we talk through the big news of the day. Brisbane residents are waking up to their first morning of a three-day snap lockdown. We need to do this now to avoid a longer lockdown. This is going to be part of the Australian way of life uh, until everyone is vaccinated. That's the Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk announcing the lockdown yesterday after four new cases of COVID emerged. Uh, That's seven cases in the last week. The lockdown will last at least three days and covers all of Greater Brisbane, which is more than two million people. We now have significant community transmission and significant numbers of venues of concern. Queensland Chief Health Officer Jeanette Young there. Uh, Brisbane residents are allowed to leave their home for essential shopping, exercise, work, study or to provide care. As for residents across the rest of the state, They'll have to use masks whenever they leave their homes. Yeah, this lockdown's really thrown the Easter holiday plans into chaos. Um, WA reimposed a hard border with Queensland and other states have introduced various restrictions and quarantine requirements for return travellers from Brisbane. The cluster is believed to have stemmed from a case from a hotel quarantine patient in early March and then to a doctor and then to the community. The total number of cases is at 10. Yeah, big worries for Byron Bay. Two of the cases announced yesterday had been there and they'd visited some very well-known spots. Um, Annika, you'd have to be nervous if you were running Blues Festival this weekend. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to go ahead at this stage. And as you say, going into Easter, I knew a number of people going up to Queensland or planning to this weekend that have had to change their plans. So it's thrown really everybody into chaos. Yeah, and interesting there that Anastasia Palaszczuk said this is what it'll be like until we get vaccinated. It was pointed out that one of those young women who went to Byron was a nurse. And if we'd rolled out the vaccine faster, health workers would have it already. So once again, um, everyone's kind of fine with our slow vaccine rollout. But as soon as we get a cluster or a snap lockdown, everyone's like, hang on a minute, why haven't we vaccinated these people? And one of the cases we had recently was someone who had actually got their first vaccine. It takes two to get full immunity, which might not happen to the end of the year. After days of speculation, Prime Minister Scott Morrison has unveiled his new cabinet, which includes promotions for a bunch of female ministers and a new task force to focus on female issues. These changes will shake up what needs to be shaken up. The Foreign Minister and Minister for Women, uh, Maurice Payne, will lead that task force of female ministers who will focus on uh, economic health and safety concerns for Australian women. Uh, Morrison described Minister Payne as like the Prime Minister for Women. Here she is. It puts addressing these issues at the centre of government. Six women in total were promoted to new roles, with female representation in Cabinet rising to 30%. Christian Porter and Linda Reynolds, though, will stay in the ministry but have been demoted to less high-profile roles. Linda Reynolds' Defence Ministry has gone to Peter Dutton and Porter's role, Attorney General and Industrial Relations Minister, has gone to Michaelia Cash. It's pretty big news, Annika. I mean, in the context of the last month, this seems to be, you know, what a lot of people were, were hoping for. But fair to say, if you cut back to a few months ago before this round of scandals 
started. The reshuffle of this magnitude would have been unthinkable, wouldn't you say? Look, there would have been a reshuffle before the election, we would have thought, just because you like to refresh your team. But given some of the IR stuff the government wanted to get through, it's unlikely that Christian Porter ever would have been moved. In terms of defence, a lot of people have their eye on that one. I think Peter Dutton would have wanted that one for a little time now. But it's a big loss for Linda Reynolds. Having a woman in that role, especially someone that used to serve in the army, was really seen as a significant moment. And of course, that seems as a backstep now. And do you think this reshuffle will be the reset that Scott Morrison's been hoping for? In some ways, yes. It depends how many more scandals we're going to get. But taking Christian Porter out of that role where he is the chief lawmaker, whilst he's also suing the ABC and has that cloud over his head, I think was a really wise move. As for Linda Reynolds, I think she definitely needed to get out of that portfolio. She says she's unwell, she's on leave. You can't have someone in defence who is feeling that way. Promoting women, on the other hand, look, there were some really good things in yesterday's reshuffle. We saw Karen Andrews become Home Affairs Minister. That's a big step for her, but there's still a lot of work to do. Okay, and like a lot of the moments from the last five weeks, there was something that undermined it and distracted from the message Scott Morrison was trying to get across, and that's the fact that uh, Andrew Lamming, um, the LMP uh, MP from Queensland, hasn't been stood down from the party immediately after the issues around abusing women online and then taking this photo of this woman bending over. Um, he's going to stay in Parliament and stay on on their side of the benches uh, until the next election as opposed to going down immediately. And that seemed to cause a massive distraction yesterday. Yeah, this is something I've never really understand. You can't sack MPs. They choose, you know, the people who live in those electorates choose to put them in there. The local party, the local branch put them in that role. There are things the Prime Minister can do in the background, but he actually has no authority, given Andrew Lamming's a Queensland LNP member, to stand him down. This has happened time after time again when we've seen controversy. And yesterday Labor was saying, well, don't accept his vote. Well, if he doesn't vote with a coalition, he votes with Labor. And I don't know how you can unaccept someone's vote. So it's one of the quirks of our system that MPs are put there by the people, by the party, and sometimes, like it or not, you have to accept the vote of people you don't like. Yeah, but those people didn't vote for him with the knowledge of these incidents. And couldn't the Prime Minister pressure the Queensland branch of the party to disendorse him? Uh, Potentially, but they can't do anything before the election, anything that wouldn't cause a early sort of by-election. And realistically, it's something that the government have tried not to do. Around election time, sometimes you see Prime Ministers try and look out for somebody who's facing a pre-selection battle. And I think that, well, we know that will happen because he's leaving but midterm, that's why we have elections every three years. Now the people in his seat in Queensland can vote him out. And the trial of police officer Derek Chauvin, accused of killing George Floyd, has begun in Minneapolis. At a protest outside the court, civil rights campaigner Al Sharpton says Chauvin may be in the dock, but America is on trial. America's on trial to see if we have gotten to the place where we can hold police accountable if they break the law. It was that video of Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck in May last year that sparked the worldwide protests and the resurgence in the Black Lives Matter movement. Prosecutors and Defence Counsel have been making opening statements this morning inside that heavily barricaded courthouse. 
And the Nine Network is still struggling to recover from that cyber attack. The network's computer system came under attack on Sunday morning, interrupting the broadcast of its Weekend Today program. Authorities say that it's most likely Russian hackers who infiltrated the Nine Microsoft operating systems. Nine also owns the Australian Financial Review, Sydney Morning Herald and my employer, The Age, and the production of those mastheads was also interrupted. And experts say it could be weeks before the operating systems return to normal. It is a good reminder, as terrible as it is for the people at Nine to have to deal with, it's a good reminder to every other business that you have to be vigilant. That was tech guru Trevor Long uh, with a reminder there for all businesses. Um, yeah, it was pretty strange to see um, Channel 9 in real trouble on Sunday. Um, apparently 60 Minutes was due to run a program critical of Russian President Vladimir Putin, and that's sort of part of the theory. Or experts say that maybe one of my colleagues... Hopefully not me. Could have just opened a dodgy email. And the Ever Given, which is the ship that was blocking the Suez Canal in Egypt, has finally been freed. (laughs) What a moment. (laughs) It's what we all need, Tom. It was blown off course in a sandstorm last week. Massive tugboats managed to free it late yesterday. Yeah, and almost 400 ships had been blocked from going through this canal, which had a big impact on world trade. Annika, what, what is it about this story? It seems to make people <laughs> laugh. It's making me laugh. It is making me laugh. It's just amazing that one ship, one sandstorm, can bring basically the whole global economy to a halt. It's just, you know, no one's, this has never happened before. But look, it's over, and it's the good news story we all needed. Yeah, absolutely. Big shout-outs to the tugboats on that one. All right, Annika, we'll catch you tomorrow. In a moment, we're talking Hong Kong. Do you remember those massive protests on the streets of Hong Kong two years ago? One particular day, there was almost 2 million people on the streets, according to organisers, and these rolling protests went for most of 2019. Critics say that this is the end of one country, two systems here in Hong Kong, that China is now in control of Hong Kong. They captured the world's attention, and many people in the West who were suspicious about the increasing power of China were cheering for these brave young democracy protesters who kept turning out despite the threat the Chinese military might step in. Good evening. In Hong Kong, hundreds of activists remain under siege inside the Polytechnic University, where there's been more violence today as police try to keep the campaigners trapped inside. So the question we're asking on today's briefing is, where is Hong Kong now? It's been two years since those protests kicked off. What happened to the protesters? And how much has this city changed since the protests and since China invoked those tough national security laws last June? Tim McLaughlin is an American reporter living there. He writes for The Atlantic as well as The Washington Post and Wide magazine. Tim, thank you for joining us. What's the mood in Hong Kong like now? You know, it's a little bit of, there's just so much going on. Uh, You know, unlike the protests, it's not happening kind of like on the streets, but there's a lot of court cases that are happening. There's, uh, you know, 12 people who tried to flee from Hong Kong to Taiwan who were caught by the Chinese Coast Guard who were returned recently, just a few days ago. Yeah, there's just like a calendar sort of like packed with trial dates and verdicts coming up related to the protests. 
and then there's you know developments in the legislature as well. So there's a lot happening. I think it's just different from from two years ago or even a year ago because it's not happening kind of like on the street. It's you know happening in the courts, happening in the in the legislature, kind of happening uh, with new laws being announced and things like that. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot going on. It's tough to keep up with sometimes. Can you tell us why Hong Kong is such a special place? I went there for the first time two years ago. I was absolutely blown away. It's such an amazing city. What is unique about Hong Kong, do you think? And why are the people in the West worried about it changing? And why are China so keen to control it? I guess for a long time, portrayed and in, in this sort of East meets West uh, sort of city with a bridge to the mainland China. But obviously, given the colonial history was under British rule until 1997, when, when they handed, uh, the UK handed, uh, you know, Hong Kong back to, to China. You know, at that time, there was really high hopes, I think, amongst the Chinese government, that the people of Hong Kong would be really kind of like welcoming to that, and that they would be extremely happy to be out from under colonial rule uh, for more than 150 years, uh, and that there would be this really strong sense of kind of like Chinese nationalism and Chinese identity. Yeah, and it didn't really work out like that, as we see. Um, you know, I think people uh, in Hong Kong had, uh, you know, a version of, of uh, you know, democracy here and a free press and uh, a lot of the rights that, that that don't exist in the mainland. And they're quite uh, keen on, on, on keeping them and expanding them into the, to, to what they were promised under the Joint Declaration, uh, you know, the document that kind of rules over the handover back to back to China. Um, yeah, so I think that that's, uh, you know, a big part of broken promises is, is a big part of kind of what we saw happen in 2019 and continuing on now. Yeah, tell us about that agreement in 1997, because I don't think you can understand the the, the protests we saw on the street two years ago and the crackdown happening in the last 12 months without knowing what that deal was all about between the British and China in 1997. Tell us about that agreement and, and how it sowed the seeds for what we're seeing now. The city was promised the, you know, the phrasing is a high degree of autonomy, you know, in parts of the basic law, which is sort of a, a mini constitution for, for the city separate from China, um, you know, dictate that there would be universal suffrage to, to decide the uh, chief executive, the leader of the city at some point. Yeah. And over the years, when when those deadlines have drawn near, Beijing has kind of reinterpreted the basic law, reinterpreted what the wording means and kind of always, um, you know, in the mind of all the pro-democracy activists and lawmakers and much of the city, uh, keeps kind of moving the goalposts on things and kind of breaking the parts of the agreement that they, that they signed on to, to to hold up. You know, this is how the Occupy protests started in 2014 because there was supposed to be, uh, you know, a change to the system so the chief executive could be voted on one person, one vote. So those went on for 79 days, and then there's a bit of a lull of activism, and then 2019 uh, kicked off and certainly started with a, you know, protest against the extradition bill. But we saw them like very quickly go beyond that and to kind of come back again to this core demand of uh, universal suffrage. I guess some people call it double universal suffrage because they want to elect all the seats in the legislature and also elect the chief executive at the moment. If people aren't familiar, the chief executive here is selected from a committee of uh, 1,200 electors. So a very, very, and there's, you know, over 7 million people living in Hong Kong. Uh, so a very, very small group of, of kind of political elites who have choice and ultimately, it's decided on by Beijing. So a system that, that many people feel rightfully is kind of tilted in the favor of Beijing always. So the agreement was for a 50-year transition, basically, where there'd be one country, two systems. Um, and, you know, eventually after 50 years, that would be essentially 
um, handed over to China, but we're at the 24-year mark. So is it essentially that China have just acted in the way that was expected, but twice as fast as was agreed in the first place? Yeah, I was, you know, I was doing an interview uh, with a student union leader not not too long ago, a few days ago, who said, you know, I expected this to happen when I was in my 50s, but I just turned, um, you know, 20 and the city is already looks like this. Uh, yeah, so I think there's there's that as well, right? There's certainly a strong sense of uh, a deal being broken here and kind of Beijing sort of taking control of Hong Kong in a way that, that was not supposed to happen for many more years uh, and that this whole timeline has been greatly accelerated. So how harsh has the crackdown been on the the activists and people seen to support the 2019 protests? The government kind of started off and the government and people in Beijing started off saying that they they needed kind of new laws and new tools to use to, to end the protest. But we saw that the protest ended in early 2020 um, last year because of COVID anyway. So there was, you know, really strict regulations here. Um, so there was a few protests kind of early in the year and then a combination of really kind of aggressive policing tactics where you couldn't really even get a protest going. They would just arrest everyone right away. And COVID kind of stopped them. So if that was the argument that, that the government's made is that they needed to bring stability back to the city and stuff, well, they didn't really need to go to the lengths to which they've gone to now, which is you know, the introduction of a national security law, which is extremely sweeping and, and carries you know life in prison for things like sedition or subversion. It's been extremely fast. It's been extremely far-reaching. And when you ask about you know activists or, or, or lawmakers, yeah, I mean – the majority of the kind of core, I guess, of well-known sort of, uh, you know, activists and pro-democracy lawmakers are in jail or have left Hong Kong. You know, very few people exist outside of, uh, yeah, outside of prison or, or inside the city now. So how many of those activists in total do you think are locked up now? Mm, well, there's 47 that are in on, on trial uh, in kind of one mass trial for violating the national security law and, and their alleged crime is that they took part in a unofficial primary vote to see if they could uh, better organize themselves for the legislative council elections, which were uh, supposed to be last year, but were postponed by the pandemic. So you have people that ran in an unofficial primary for an election that never happened who are now uh, facing life in jail. Okay, but there were 2 million people on the streets at one point. So it's not like they've gone and just locked up swathes of people that were protesting. It's, it's more the ringleaders that they're, they're focusing on? No, there's there's you know there's others like hundreds of, of also demonstration cases going on right. So they're right. still going after those and and there's a there's I guess those would be the most severe ones that I mentioned. There's mm. also yeah you know you can pretty much go to court any day in Hong Kong and 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 catch cases of you know people involved in protesting or rioting or things like that. Do a lot of these people um, get bail or are they locked up the whole time they're waiting for those trials to finish? On the national security um, cases, the bail is, you know, it's almost reversed. It's its a presumption that, that you have to be able to prove essentially that you, you're not going to break the law again, which is very difficult because of how wide ranging it is. Uh, and so most of them are of, – of the 47, uh, 36 of those people are still – are being held without bail. So 11 mm-hmm. of them were, were granted bail. In the other cases, the other national security cases – the bail was denied kind of blanketly for almost all of them. There's been big talk of an, of an exodus from Hong Kong, that, it, that it's changing so much that um, potentially up to a million people might leave. Um, countries like ours, uh, Canada, the UK have 
um, open their doors for Hong Kongers to to move to our countries and, and get visas uh, relatively easily. Do you think there will be a massive exodus? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is, you know, we've seen this again, like once before in 1997, like a lot of people left um, and then they ended up, a lot of them kind of ended up returning a fair number of them because they saw that, uh, you know, things like hadn't changed that much. And, um, but uh, this time around, I certainly think so. It, it, the problem with it is it's difficult to ascertain like a, a very good figure because a lot of people like in, in Hong Kong have, uh, or I shouldn't say a lot, but a, a fair number of people who have, you know, second passports from another country, BNO passports, which were granted to, to people in Hong Kong, like a special kind of, you know, passport that were given to them by the British. Um, so it's hard to kind of keep track of everyone. There's no good system for like tracking like the exact number. But I think anecdotally, and, and we do see, and Reuters had a good story about the movement to Canada a couple weeks ago. It seems like, you know, or if you're around town and meeting people, you certainly know uh, a host of people, a handful of people, it seems like everybody knows people who are leaving. Clearly, there's a lot of concern in the West at the moment about China flexing its muscles. Do we really need to be that concerned about this? I mean, you, you mentioned 1997 after that agreement, you know, with the handover that people fled and then realised, you know, the place hadn't changed that much. So clearly, um, Hong Kongers seem to have a, a culture of their own that continues despite these massive sort of turning points in its history 1989 was another one after Tiananmen Square where a number of people left, but, you know, the city of Hong Kong continued to be what, you know, it, it was to many people at least. Um, yeah. Do you think it's going to change substantially this time around? Yeah. Fundamentally, I think that China, that the world was kind of seeing and dealing with in 1989 and 1997 was not Xi Jinping's China of 2020 or 2021. Uh, so I think that that is kind of the, the one big part of it is that it's a different place with a different leader, kind of a fundamentally almost different country uh, at the moment. What happened following those two events in Hong Kong was kind of totally different to what we're seeing now, this kind of catch-all kind of sweep across like I said, like arts and culture, education, the legal sector, you know, you have serious questions now about how the common law courts will be able to to continue to function here. So yeah, I think the city has fundamentally shifted and there's been changes that would be, that it doesn't seem like there's any undoing of them uh, going forward. Are you going to leave? Um, no, uh, <laughs> no plans to yet. So uh, I'll be around, you know, continue reporting, I think is the, is the plan. That was Tim McLaughlin, a reporter living in Hong Kong. And I guess the real test of of how much Hong Kong changes will be borne out in how many people leave. As Tim pointed out, it's been quite difficult to do that during COVID and it will take some time, I guess, to see how many people actually take up those visa options in other countries because Hong Kong has changed so much. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're taking you to the US-Mexico border. Listener.